Our scripture lesson this morning is again from Romans 8, verses 23 through 27. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he searches the hearts, knows that what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Father, I need your help to squeeze and penetrate the heart by your word to accomplish your saving and strengthening and encouraging purposes in this hour. So come and help me, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We're focusing on verse 26 and 27. Last week and this week, you see what it says. We have weaknesses. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. Part of our weakness is that we don't know what to pray from time to time. The Spirit intercedes for us with groanings that are wordless. The Father who searches the hearts sees, knows the mind of the Spirit, and He does what the Spirit asks Him to do and brings about everything to work together for our good. I asked three questions last week. What does he pray when he prays, the Holy Spirit, for us? And how does he pray and why does he pray? And I tried to answer the what question last week. Let me summarize and then move to the other two this morning. What does he pray? He prays that God would bring about decisions and circumstances that would magnify Christ in our lives when we don't know how to pray and don't know the particulars of how Christ would be glorified in our lives. You see that word weakness there in verse 26. I argued that it, that word weakness is filled up by everything in verses 18 to 25. It's filled up by the groanings. It's filled up by the sufferings, by the decay, by the futility. All those words that are used to describe this fallen world that we live in, participate in. We're weak, and one of the effects of that weakness is that we come to our wits' end, and we're at a loss to know how to pray next about what's coming in our lives, and we can't see our way forward as to what the particularities of God's will are that He might want us to pray toward. We don't know whether to escape from danger or to stand. We don't know whether to be healed or to pray for endurance and be thankful for medication. We don't know whether to take a risk with our life or to... Stay in safety. But one thing we know. We know that whatever happens, we want Christ to be magnified in our bodies, whether by life or by death. That's what it means to be a saint. And you see the word saint there in verse 27? That's not some highfalutin special category of Christian. Saint in the New Testament means Christian. Holy one, set apart for God. Bought by Jesus. To be a saint is simply to have that passion. Namely, I want Christ to be exalted in my life. 
But when you have that desire there, many times you don't have a clue how that's going to happen. You don't know whether it's going to be by your life or by your death, by being poor or being rich, being healthy or being sick, being married or being single, passing the course or failing the course. I said it was really relevant to us because all of us will be sick and all of us will be in danger and the relevance increases as it becomes more dangerous to be a Christian in the world, which it does every day. Let me ask you this, just to put it right on the immediate front burner. What would you do if you were Lowell and Amy Stoltzus living in northern India right now? The president says, come home, 60,000 Americans. Would you come? Maybe. Maybe not. It's a tough call, isn't it? Or let me read you another email that just came this week from another one of our missionaries who's part of this church. Our confiscated books are now being scrutinized for subversive content. Meanwhile, we have submitted notice to the authorities announcing our intention to recommence public meetings. When the lawyer served the papers, he was told it would have been better received if he had come and cursed them. Such is our welcome among the authorities. Please pray for us that we will have much wisdom. It is not the best timing to have finally had these papers submitted. As we sat and considered whom of our local brothers and sisters might be able to stand with us, we are aware that each one has a very valid reason why it is not a good time to be arrested. Is it ever a convenient time to be arrested? Maybe not. But some circumstances certainly make it even more a problem. We need to hear from the Lord how to proceed. Now, that couple will be listening to this tape within a few weeks, probably. So I want to say this with care and exhortation and encouragement. Maybe you don't need to hear from the Lord about what to do next. Maybe this will be a Romans 8.26 moment. In your life. In which you don't know what to do. And you grow knowing one thing for sure. I want Christ to be exalted here in this city. How? Arrest or not arrest? Stay or go? Liked or disliked? Persecuted or affirmed? I don't know. And maybe in your ignorance... You need to just relax and let the Holy Spirit pray. Because he will ask the Father for the particulars of how Christ is to be magnified here. And it will be done. Either with illumination on your part or without illumination on your part. You will find yourself led by the sovereign Father, in response to the merciful pleadings of the Holy Spirit. So, be encouraged, Bethlehem, and all those who hear this tape on the mission field. Be encouraged. Is it not wonderful, at least I find it wonderful, that in this text, God is not condemning or even criticizing Saints for not knowing the will of God.
I find that unbelievably liberating. And I know that there are many, many profess, perfectionistically oriented saints who would look at you and say, now, if you don't know the will of God, there's sin in your life. So let's just get the sin in, out of your life and you will know what to do next. Well, I agree that happens. Yes, if there's sin that we're cherishing, we will probably be blocked from recognizing God's best next step. But I'm here to tell you on the basis of this verse, you get all the sin out of your life. And there will be some times when this verse applies to godly, saintly people. There's no criticism in this verse. This is not an indictment of saints. This is a declaration of the mercy of God to care for weak saints who don't know what to pray. And they've done all the self-examination they know to do. And they're at their wit's end to know what to do next. That's what this verse is about. It's about caring for the saints. And that's really encouraging. That was question number one. Here's question number two. How does the Holy Spirit pray for us? Now, the sentence that gives the answer is in verse 26. There's also some in verse 27, but the one I want to work on is the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. What's that? Is that my groanings? Is that the Spirit's groanings and not my groanings? Is that the Spirit's groanings in and through my groanings? Is that groanings in my heart or is it groanings up in heaven where the Spirit is making a case for my future before the Father? What's this, groanings? How does he do this? How does the Holy Spirit pray? I'll ask you, have you ever experienced this text? Do you know what it is like? Or is it to be experienced? Is it just information about what happens between the Father and the Spirit? And you don't experience it. It's a very... Very urgent question. Now, I'll tell you my answer, and then I'll give you four reasons for why I believe it. My answer is that when it says, the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings that are unspoken, unspoken groanings, wordless groanings, it means my groanings inspired by the Spirit. Created by the Spirit, directed by the Spirit, informed and shaped by the Spirit. My groanings and His groanings. Now, why do I think that's what is meant here? Number one, because to start, it's very hard for me to imagine, though this isn't a very good argument, you know, my imagination has limits. But it's where I start because that's where we live. It's very hard for me to imagine why the Holy Spirit would groan to the Father, except in and through my groanings, because he doesn't need to groan. He knows everything. He's perfectly in charge. He knows exactly what he wants to come to pass. There's no aching and groaning in the heart of the Holy Spirit about the will of God to be done next. He's not in heaven saying, oh, God, I wish I knew. There's nothing like that in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is absolutely omniscient. And so when he makes a case to the Father, he knows exactly what he's communicating to the Father and what he wants the Father to do. So what's, why would he groan? 
which draws me toward the other interpretation, I think he's groaning in my groanings. I think it's my groanings that are being talked about here, brought about by the Holy Spirit. But let me give you three more reasons for this view. A second reason would be that it says the one who is searching and hearing is searching in the heart. The end of verse 26, the Spirit himself intercedes for us with wordless groanings, and he who searches the hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit. So the theater of the groaning is the heart. The place the groaning is happening is in the heart, which tends to make me think, I experience this. I sense this. I know this is happening. These are mine. Here's my third reason for thinking in this direction. The word groaning in the context, verse 22, verse 23, now again in verse 26, is what fallen, aching, broken, frustrated people do and creation. Look at verse 22. The whole creation groans and suffers pains of childbirth until now. Verse 23. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, even we who have the first fruits of the Holy Spirit. And there, that means in spite of the fact that we have the first fruits of the Holy Spirit, we groan inwardly. So groaning is something you experience when you're inadequate and you're weak and you're fallen and you're sinful and you're broken and you're trying to give birth to newness. And the Holy Spirit is not broken and he's not fallen and he's not aching. These are my groanings, I believe, prompted, spurred, directed and shaped by the Spirit. Now, here's my last reason for thinking this. It's really powerful in my mind. There is almost a perfect analogy between the groaning of the Spirit in verse 26 and the witness of the Spirit in verse 15 and 16. In verse 15, it says, You have not received a spirit of slavery to fall back again into fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons. When we cry, notice, we cry when we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God. So I ask you, who's crying here? When there bubbles up, wells up from deep in my heart, a solid, authentic conviction, Father. Abba, Father, God, you are my Father. Who's talking? I'm talking. And the Holy Spirit is talking. I would never, out of this fallen, wicked, self-reliant heart, recognize in God a Father to meet all my needs and on whom I should trust. This is the work and the witness of the Holy Spirit. So it is His witness and it's my witness. It's my voice and it's His voice crying out, Abba, Father. And when you come down here to verse 26, whose groanings? Whose groanings? The Spirit's groanings, it says plainly. It's the Spirit's groanings. But He doesn't need to groan. He's in me, groaning for me, with me. 
My groanings are his groanings and his groanings and my groanings. He's partnering with me because he sees how I'm hitting the wall. And instead of just any old angry, frustrated groanings, there is a Christ exalting root to these groanings. That's why I said it last week and I've said it over and over again. What makes a person a saint is that when they hit the wall and they're at their wits end, they don't know what to pray and they don't know what to do next. They don't know nothing. They know something. Namely, they know that whatever happens, I want Christ to be exalted. And that's the essence of our saintly groaning. Oh, God, I don't know which way to go to the right or to the left to take this medicine or not to take this medicine, to leave that land or not leave that land, to take my children or not to take my children. I don't know what to do next. And you come to a wordless. (laughs) And God looks into that heart and he sees two things. He sees a saint groaning, and he hears the voice of the Spirit in the groaning. And what the Spirit is saying is, magnify your son and do it this way, and it will be done. Because that's the way the son will get the most glory. So my answer to the question, how does the Spirit pray for us, is that he stirs up. Christ-exalting groanings for God in our hearts and in them, in a wordless language that the Father discerns, asks the Father to do particular things that will most magnify Christ, which is going to lead right into verse 28. All things work together for good for those who love God because he always gets his prayers answered. God never says no to God. I don't want to leap over just a word of application. Why does this matter to you? I hope this does not seem like merely speculative information. It really matters because you're going to groan. Our groanings and his groanings are one, and you are going to groan. You're going to hit the wall. You're not going to know what to do next. And this text is relevant because he's helping us endure suffering and futility and decay and groaning. He's encouraging us. Now get this. He's encouraging us that in this fallen world, as saints participate in the brokenness and the futility and the suffering, one component of your weakness will always be Ignorance of the will of God. Now, let me say it perhaps even more carefully. While we are on this earth being saved, one component of our fallenness, our weakness, our humanness, our brokenness, our futility, our groaning, one component of it will be some ignorance of the will of God. That is so important for you to know, because, you know, if you don't believe that, you're going to beat yourself up pretty badly over and over again when you get to junctures in your life and you don't know whether to go right or left. And there are perfectionistic, over-realized eschatology folks who will say, you can know. you got enough faith, you'll know. And I'm saying... Often you'll know, 
often he'll answer that prayer. And this text says, not always. And when it happens, don't beat yourself up over what is designed for your faith in the Holy Spirit. It's a gift to you at that moment. At the very moment when you feel most weak, most ignorant, most frustrated, this text is designed to say, oh, good, there's somebody praying for me who really knows what it's all about. That's the point of the text, is to relieve you of the burden of those moments. All right, last question, quickly. Why in the world is it set up this way? Remember I said last week, it's so strange. Good night, this is strange. God praying to God that God would do the will of God. This is very strange. Why would God ordain that God pray to God to get the will of God done? It's just complicated. Just simplify it. Move the middle component. Just, Father, do it. You know what needs to be done. Why do you need the Spirit to tell you what needs to be done? Just do it. Well, be careful, Piper. Be careful who you think you are. Don't ever dictate to God how to save you and keep you and bless you and glorify his son. Don't ever use your reason to call this book into question as though you could design a better universe than God. I believe me, I would not trust you with the universe. <laughs> and I know you wouldn't trust me. With the universe. Now here's what we have to do. And our time is gone. Well, we're going to do it anyway. So hang on. I'll do it as fast as I can. I'm going to develop in five minutes a theology of prayer. In five sentences. Because you see, this is just a problem of the bigger picture of prayer. I mean, why pray at all? John Piper suggesting to God how to run the universe? Give me a break. What does he need my advice for? I know nothing compared to what he knows. I am a sinner. He's not a sinner. Why would he come to me and consult? What is the point of prayer? That's a big, huge, massive, important question. Why did God design a universe in which an omnipotent, omniscient God would consult with me and say, would you ask me to do a thing or two and then do it? What a strange thing. So here's my theology of prayer in five sentences. One. God created the universe and everything in it to display the riches of the glory of his grace. If you don't buy that, you won't buy a thing I say. Everything I preach is based on that sentence. God created the universe and all that is in it to display the riches of the glory of his grace. Isaiah 43, 6, Ephesians 1, 6, 1, 12, 1, 14, Romans 9, 23 are my foundation for that. We don't have time to read them. Sentence number two. Therefore, all persons in the world should act in a way that calls attention to God's glorious grace. If that's why he made the world, everybody should live so as to make much of the glory of God's grace. Matthew 5, 16, 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Sentence number three. The obedience and service of God's people will glorify him most when they consciously and manifestly depend upon his help and his grace to do what they do. God will be magnified as gracious when we do what we do in dependence on his help. That makes sense. 
And it's also biblical. First Peter 4.11. Let him who serves, serve in the strength that God supplies so that in everything God may get the glory. This is clear as a bell in the Bible that the way God gets glory is through our dependence on him to help us do what we do. Sentence number four. Prayer. Now here comes prayer into this big global universal design. Prayer for God's help is one way that God preserves and manifests the dependence of his people on his grace and power. In other words, if God gets most glory by our depending on him, manifestly depending on him, consciously depending on him, he knows one way to keep us depending on him. Put that ever and ever and ever on the front burner is to ordain that we pray to get the help we need. Help, 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 help is the way you pray without ceasing. All day long. Help, 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 help to finish the sermon, help to deal with the criticism that's going to come because I'm over time. Help. I live as a desperate human being. And you do too. Only you may not manifest it so that God gets glory. Prayer is one of the manifestations that shows we're desperate. Desperate. I'm desperate. I'm desperate for you. That's number four. Here's the last one. Here we are now at our text. Number five. Sentence five. It's a long sentence. It's got a colon. A lot of semicolons. When the Spirit inspires and directs the groanings of our hearts. So that's what we've got now. And we're asking why? What's going on here? When, when the Spirit inspires and directs the groanings of our hearts, the ultimate purpose of the universe happens. God gets glory because God the Spirit is stirring up the dependencies and the longings and the achings, even the wordless ones. God gets glory because God the Father is the one who hears and discerns so perfectly what those groanings really mean and acts. God gets glory because God the Son bought every benefit that we will be given by the work of the Holy Spirit. And, fourthly, God gets glory consciously because he has chosen that the theater of this divine interplay between the Father and the Son. The theater is my heart so that I can discern it's happening. I groan it. And then I'm taught by the Bible, here's what that groaning means. Here's what's going on in you. Know it. And what's the effect? Praise Him. Thank Him. Trust Him. Lean on Him. And He gets the glory. And that's why we were made. So I close with this word. When you feel very weak, and you will if you don't now, because of suffering or decay or sickness or futility or persecution or failed plans or baffling decisions, do not despair at that moment. God is not, because of that, angry with you. In fact, he has designed from all eternity a strategy to help you in that very situation. What a gracious and merciful God we have who has planned, and it's all here in Romans 8. This is getting better and better. It's all designed. Nothing is going to separate us from the love of God. Not moments of ignorance. 
not frustrations, not failed plans, not sickness, not futility, not groaning. Nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That's where we're moving in this chapter. And you can see all the foundations being put under how he has provided for every kind of challenge you have in your life, including this kind. And so let's close. Father, encourage your people this week. Make them strong. May all their groanings be the groanings for the exaltation of Jesus. And may in their moments of uncertainty and confusion, when they don't know how they should pray, intercede for them and bring about wonderful things in their lives, I pray. And all the people said, Amen. And you're dismissed.